Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet. I'm the CEO of Ocean STL Consulting and former Deputy Administrator of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I was also the Assistant Secretary of Commerce and, before that, the Oceanographer of the Navy. We are a monthly offering by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and brought to you by Coastal News Today. The American Blue Economy Podcast brings together leading voices in the ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes-based economies to expand awareness and collaboration, identify positive solutions to address the many challenges to the ocean economy, such as conflicting uses and climate change, and provide thought leadership to support our post-pandemic national recovery. In today's episode, we discussed ocean mapping, exploration, and characterization. Two weeks ago, we were thrilled to host the perfect scene setter for this episode, and it was none other than Dr. Robert Ballard, the world-famous ocean explorer and discoverer of the RMS Titanic. And there we had a really engaging discussion about his book, uh, The Memoir, Into the Deep, a memoir by the man who found Titanic. And today we'll explore the remarkable field of ocean discovery that he helped advance, to a great extent popularized for current and future generations. Ocean mapping, exploration, and characterization has big-time blue economy implications. Mapping, for example, supports fisheries, wind energy development, and shipping and marine transportation. And the exploration and characterization parts of it are supporting the search for critical minerals, as well as energy and conservation for fishing and tourism. And ocean mapping, exploration, and characterization is informing the definition of the extended continental shelf. And this is critical to help the U.S. identify this extent of continental shelf that goes beyond the 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, consistent with the Law of the Sea Treaty. And this is just an important maritime zone possessing many resources and vital habitats for marine life. NOAA is one of several agencies leading the U.S. effort to define its extended continental shelf. And to date, the project has involved 36 surveys, over 900 days at sea, and nearly 1 million square nautical miles of bathymetric data. And when you think about the economic implications of 1 million square miles of additional EEZ, it is staggering. So, and this, this whole topic of this episode is supporting that major blue economy effort. And so if there's anything else I want the audience to take away from today, it is that ocean exploration is as important, exciting, and challenging, if not more, more in my opinion, than what NASA does in exploring space. And in fact, uh, one of my favorite headlines that I made in 2019 when I was at NOAA advancing uh, the ocean exploration program uh, is I compared NASA and NOAA, and I said that we, we really, I thought, were outpacing them in discovery and exciting uh, advancements. And I complain that I always see kids on the National Mall wearing NOAA shirts, NASA shirts, and that I wanted to see them wearing NOAA shirts with ROVs and AUVs attached to them. And so uh, that was the headline, uh, NOAA Deputy Administrator, I want to see a kid with a NOAA shirt. To kick off our episode, I could not be more honored to introduce one of our nation's foremost champions for ocean exploration and mapping. And that is Senator Roger Wicker from the great state of Mississippi. Senator Wicker, welcome to the American Blue Economy Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Admiral, and certainly glad to be with you. Yes, sir. Well, you remember that during my time as a flag officer in Mississippi, and then as the acting and deputy administrator of NOAA, you worked closely with me, and we together really worked to expand our nation's capabilities to map the seafloor 
and Explorer Ocean. And, and you, sir, accomplished a major leap forward by introducing the C-Note Act, where C-Note stands for Commercial Engagement Through Ocean Technology. And it was signed by the president in 2018. So, Senator, was the C-Note Act intended to advance ocean mapping and exploration? And, or exactly how, how, what are the pieces of it that did that? Well, uh, of course, the the ocean is vast, and it's surprising, I think, to some people uh, how much of it is unobserved. It's actually woefully underobserved, uh, and, and also there's a, a constantly changing nature of the world's oceans. So it it, it costs money, and it is um, um, costly in, in terms of time um, to provide up to date information. So. Um, that was the idea of the C-Note Act, uh, uncrewed maritime systems uh, to, uh, to take some of, uh, of the human variable out of that. Uh, unmanned, uh, uh, uncrewed maritime systems serve as a valuable role when the mission is uh, it's the three Ds, uh, dangerous, dull, and dirty um, for human crews. Um, you can, you can put an uncrewed maritime system down on the bottom of the ocean, a series of them, a fleet of them, and uh, keep them there uh, for long periods of time. And uh, it turns out to be a cost-effective way to bring about a dramatic increase in the number of ocean observations. And, uh, and, and there are just a, a, a number of ways in which uh, our uh, society and uh, humankind in general will benefit from that. Well, absolutely, sir. And in fact, that's why I was personally so happy with this C-Note Act, because it, like as you said, directed uh, advances in uncrewed and autonomous systems, which are rapidly expanding everywhere. And it also directed the Navy and NOAA to work together more in advancing the research and development and operation and applications, which we saw this year really come to fruition uh, when both the Navy and NOAA used their underwater gliders to map the sea surface temperature and improve the predictions of hurricanes that hit the Gulf Coast. So, so sir, I, I, I would think you're pretty pleased with how Navy and NOAA have implemented uh, the CNOAD Act. Is that, is that fair? I think it, it's, been, it's been terrific and gratifying because, you know, oftentimes uh, we... we um, we enact legislation, and and you kind of wonder if the if the people in the agencies uh, appreciate that that we've um, uh, talked with stakeholders and and uh, done a good job. In this case, the Navy and NOAA worked with us to get the language right. Um, and and yes, this hurricane season, which at the time of, of this recording is is uh, still going on, although we certainly hope it's subsiding uh, we had we had a great result with hurricane ida which was a a hugely powerful storm but um, it, if you give those of us on land um, adequate information we know how to predict we know how to prepare and uh, we know where to evacuate or at least have a better idea of where to evacuate so uh, th that um uh, Early on in in the uh, life of this statute um, has uh, has justified its enactment. 
Yes, sir. Indeed. In fact, uh, you're, you're right about that. And you would think you, most people wouldn't connect the fact that ocean observing and systems and sensors and uncrewed and autonomous vehicles link to a better weather, life-saving weather forecast. But, but that is the case, uh, both in terms of the ocean component of the, the model or the prediction and, um, and, and of course, the, uh, the sea surface temperature, as I mentioned. So there's a, a kind of a mapping. The seafloor is important for the ocean model. And then the sea surface temperature is important to feed the boundary condition for the weather model. But then there's also big blue economy uh, connections for uh, ocean vehicles and sensors, uh, certainly with respect to mapping the seafloor and all the uh, incredible uses of that. And I know that uh, when we, you and I, broke ground on the Senator Roger Wicker Center for Ocean Enterprise in the port of Gulfport, uh, that was some of, that was some of the intended uh, uh, mission of that. So, can you describe the mission of your center and what that will do for the economy in Gulfport and Mississippi? Well, thank you for mentioning that, and uh, this is um, the culmination. It will be the culmination of a lot of years of work with Southern Miss, the University of Southern Mississippi and uh, the leadership, um, the collective leadership on uh, and along the Gulf Coast. Uh, actually, uh, I was down there for uh, a related event and, and the, uh, the governing authorities um, sprung this surprise on me and, and um, said they were naming it after me, which of course is, is a very high honor that I appreciated. Uh, but did not seek, but it, it is, uh, it's been framed out now. And I think, I guess it's expected to open in April of next year, um, at the Mississippi state port authority at Gulfport. A lot of people call it the, the port of Gulfport, but it's actually, uh, a state owned, uh, port and it will have uh, prototype fabrication equipment. It will have, uh, labs, training, conference space, um, and, um, a testing range, um, and, and actually there's more to it than I understand with my non-scientific mind, but, um, the people that know what they're doing say this will be four dimensional, shallow, medium and deep water testing range, um, and provide real time mission support. And, um, we hope it, um, evolves into the centerpiece of uh, research and development for the blue economy, um, not only on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, but uh, for the entire region. Well, yes, sir. I, I know there's many needs out there, uh, whether it be supporting fisheries management uh, or the offshore energy development, wind or, or natural gas, and uh, even the search for critical minerals, which in addition to having blue economy implications, these are national security implications. So, really excited about this uh, center uh, and all that will, it will do for our nation. And uh, also economic, economic uh, development, Admiral, uh, you know, the, the, the ports um, need, need uh, real-time information about tides and uh, the movement of freight. We obviously hope they're at that port and our other ports along the Gulf Coast to um, increase our business. And, you know, there's every opportunity to do that now with the uh, expanded Panama Canal and and things of that nature. So yes, um, um, a, a lot of potential there for uh, safety, preparedness, and uh, creating um, a bunch of jobs through better education and um, and and, um, 
and, and, and through the uh, academic partnership. Well, indeed, Senator. And I did see you uh, introduced a bill to amend Title 46 to establish a, a grant program for improving education and career training programs for American workers in the maritime workforce. And uh, that's a piece of this, I, I would I suspect. Right. And we, uh, we have a number of, um, of co-sponsors there and, and uh, uh, you know, always trying to, um, to um, expand on what we've already done. We have some good co-sponsors and uh, um, we need to, to reauthorize um, the National Ocean Mapping Exploration and Characterization Council. And uh, Yes, that, that's a, a really exciting that we kind of double teamed and that at NOAA, we established this National Ocean Mapping and Exploration Council uh, to, at a national level, uh, develop a plan and a strategy for mapping and exploration. And now you've introduced this legislation, the ocean exploration legislation uh, in February, a bipartisan uh, bill. It's just terrific to authorize and codify that council. So thank you, sir, for that. Well, we have, uh, we have um, the chair of my committee um, from Washington, the state of Washington, Maria Cantwell. We have senators from uh, uh, everywhere from, uh, Alaska to Hawaii to uh, uh, Rhode Island, um, and so and and of course the Gulf Coast and and uh, and yours truly. So um, it, we we've got a broad uh, group of uh, supporters there, and I think we'll be able to get it across the finish line. It's bipartisan. Um, it, uh, it it's um, it. it is neither right nor left. It's just um, more more knowledge and more jobs, more opportunity. All good, sir. Great to hear. And just kind of wrapping up, you know, at a big high level, what would you say? What's why is ocean mapping, exploration, and characterization important for our country? Well, thank you for thank you for this podcast and, and for helping us make that point. You know, seventy uh, percent of the world's surface is covered by water and almost all of that is ocean water there are a few lakes and we love them but um the ocean is where it's at and we you know you can you can look at a at a very um detailed minutely detailed um map of the world's surface but you will not find um that much detail when it comes to the surface of the ocean and uh, and so the the more we learn um, uh, about some of these areas of planet Earth that really are as far into us as as the surface of the of, um, Neptune or Saturn, um, the 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 better uh, the better off we are, and the more understanding we have. And there's no telling what it'll unlock. You you mentioned you mentioned uh, um, minerals. Um, uh, other opportunities uh, for for safety and advancement. So, um, w we've got a lot of work to do. It will outlive you and me, Admiral, in uh, um, ocean exploration, mapping, and understanding. I look at it as unlocking the the last um, bit of uh, frontier that we have on planet Earth. Very well said, sir. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think this, this mission, this legislation that you've introduced and all your support heretofore has been as and probably more important to uh, American people directly than the great space programs of even NASA. So 
Senator Wicker, you have provided a perfect introduction for this episode of our American Blue Economy podcast. Thank you above all for all that you have done, uh, not just for our ocean, but for the safety, security, and prosperity of our great nation. Well, you're quite welcome, and thank you for doing the podcast. I think this is going to enhance public understanding and education uh, about uh, a, a very efficient use of the taxpayer funding. Uh, here, here, sir. Great to great to hear that, and uh, again, a great introduction to go forward in this. So, thank you again, Senator. Call us again. Thank you. For today's episode, we are joined by a truly elite group of ocean explorers. First off, we have Dr. Alan Leonardi, who's currently the president and CEO of the Consortium for Ocean Leadership, and he was the former director of the NOAA Office for Ocean Exploration and Research. This is the national program office for this topic. Alan, it is so good to be together with you again. Sir, thanks for having me, and I'm, I'm really excited about the topic and this great panel that you've put together. I look forward to a great conversation. Well, you bet. We also have Dr. Leslie Sauter. She's the professor of geology at the College of Charleston, and she's also the director of their Benthic Acoustic Mapping and Survey Team, or BEAMS. Leslie, so nice to see you again, or hear you at least. Thank you for being here. Hi, Tim, and I'm just so pleased to talk with you and the others today, and um, it's a great topic, of course. I'm very passionate about it. I know it, and I think we all are. We also have Cassie Bongiovanni. She is at the Applied Research Lab of the University of Texas, and formerly she was the lead mapper of the record-setting Five Deeps Expedition, which we'll talk about. Cassie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. And we also have Allison Fundus. She's the Chief Operating Officer of the Ocean Exploration Trust. And this is the organization led by Dr. Ballard, who we had on the previous episode. And Dr. Ballard mentioned Allison and some pretty heroic achievements she was making recently. And I can't wait to talk about those too. So Allison, so good for you to be here. Thanks for having me, Tim. Good to be with you and all these colleagues and friends. Right on. And we have Dr. Joydika Vermani, who is the executive director of the Schmidt Ocean Institute and was a key NOAA partner in our ocean exploration work. And I had just recently visited with her during the Ocean X Prize Awards in Houston. Joydika, we are thrilled to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, for inviting me. And I look forward to a wonderful conversation with everyone. Absolutely. And rounding out this incredible lineup is Rear Admiral Sam Perez. He was formerly the the commander of carrier aircraft carrier strike group one in addition to many other prestigious assignments in the navy and now he is the ceo of ocean infinity america sam thanks for being here tim it's great to talk to you again and uh, what a pleasure and an honor it is to be here on your program well all right yes so we have a great group let's get to it i'm going to begin by uh, starting with alan leonardi Dr. Leonardi uh, formerly had this national program, the NOAA Office of Exploration and Research. This funded many of the individuals that you hear on the call today and their programs. And so, Alan, could you just introduce the audience to this program you directed for several years and and what the purpose of it is? Sure thing, Tim. Uh, I had the true pleasure and honor of running the NOAA Office of Ocean Exploration and Research, the the only program dedicated to systematically uh, exploring the ocean within our federal government system. Um, my, my role there was to lead the efforts in developing the strategy and the direction that we needed to go in uh, to conduct operations and to support operations uh, through other entities as well. 
um, the, the, the program is, is truly unique. It is effectively a, a very small version of the NASA for the ocean, uh, where we are going to the places that nobody's ever done. Uh, been before. We're advancing the technologies that are going to help us explore and understand the ocean environment. Uh, and we're sharing that that joy of exploration with everybody publicly when we're doing and supporting this work along the way. So a uh, very great program uh, that is leading agency efforts now across government to, to focus on mapping, uh, exploring, and characterizing the full extent of our US EEZ. Exactly. And the way this, to elaborate just a bit for, for our listeners, so NOAA has a dedicated exploration ship called the Okeanos Explorer, and the kind of uh, MO is to uh, deep dive our remotely operated vehicles and sometimes autonomous underwater vehicles that are untethered and perform this kind of mapping with a sonar to characterize the, the seafloor, but also explore with the, the cameras and um, optical uh, sensors on the ROVs and AUVs and vehicles as Ballard talked about, Dr. Ballard talked about in the last episode, and, and look and explore and find what's out there and discover. And, uh, and so just so many neat things, to, and we can go on and talk about what we've discovered with this great crew here. Um, one of the key partners of this effort is uh, ac- academic institutions like Dr. Sauter's uh, team at the College of Charleston. So Leslie, uh, tell us about your program there that's focused mostly on mapping. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Um, several years ago, I started a program called that is now called Beams, and uh, the students who go through it are called Beam Beamers, or they join the Beam team. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, it is an undergraduate program, and most of the students are geology students or marine biology students. And I started it because of my interest in exploring the seafloor and to identify and maybe characterize different benthic habitats. So it's a, we use primarily the data that come from the Okeanos Explorer and the Nautilus and sometimes from the Schmidt, uh, from the Falcor. Uh, but the idea of the program is that they learn some of the key post-processing software of multi-beam sonar data, then they use that uh, software to conduct real research. And each student has their own research project. They pro- uh, produce and present posters at national meetings. And we try very hard to get each and every student out to see at least for a day, if not for up to four days. And NOAA has been wonderful in the past, allowing us to use their vessels for BEAMS dedicated programs. We hope to have more of those in the future. Um, but it's been really fun. About 200 students have gone through the whole program, and I'm happy to say half of them are in the seafloor mapping workforce, and half of that cadre are women. So we're really helping to boost the women in hydrography, and uh, it's been great. And I'm also pleased to say 25% of our students who have gone into the workforce are at NOAA. So they're wearing their NOAA t-shirts, Tim. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for that. And what a major impact you've had. I really have to commend you for that positive influence you've had. And I, I remember reading about your expeditions. You were on uh, our ship and, uh, and and all the people you influenced and mentored along the way, are, as you said, are doing great things. And it's incredible that the fact that we have not mapped uh, um, even 50% of our own exclusive economic zone. And it's, it's much less for the rest of the world. So we know the more about the surface of Mars and the moon than we do our own ocean. 
And thank you for meeting that important challenge. Uh, and one of the great things you just mentioned is about getting more women into the hyd- hydrographic force. And I couldn't <laughs> think of a better introduction for Cassie Bongiovanni, who is at ARL University of Texas and is one of those uh, mappers, hydrographers, acousticians. And Cassie, you were a part of an extraordinary expedition that NOAA was a kind of peripheral partner with this last year. And how about telling us about that and the mapping component of it? Sure. Um, I was uh, brought on in late 2018 to Caledon Oceanic, a group that was funded and created by Victor Viscovo, a private um, explorer. And he had the vision to go dive in a manned submersible to the deepest place in each ocean and was shocked when we didn't have an answer of where those were because they hadn't been mapped. So um, in late 2018, he reached out through the Okeanos group, actually, while I was a student at UNH, and um, I got involved with them. I joined their ship in December, and we traveled around the world, and my role was to map and determine where the deepest point was, as well as help plan the, the dives. Right. And these were, these were new discoveries of, of you know, precisely measuring, for example, the deepest spot in the ocean in the, in the Marianas Trench of the Challenger Deep. And that was great because Noah did work with you. And I believe we sent a hydrophone that you deployed so we could most, you could accurately measure the depth of the Challenger Deep to the most precise uh, measurement had yet been, which is quite an accomplishment. And did I characterize that correctly? Uh, yes, you did. This past year, when we went back, um, you guys sent out a handful, I believe, um, and we ha- we every dive that they did, they came back with like six or seven CTD pressure depth um, values. So we've it's high. We are very confident in the depths that we ended up reporting. Right, right. And, uh, and for those who are, uh, aren't familiar, the conductivity temperature and depth sensors are used to uh, estimate the sound speed at depth. And that's, that's how you perform uh, the calculation of, the, of the, the depth using acoustic means. And uh, well, that's great, Cassie. We'll talk more about that. But I want to move on to Allison Fundus of the Ocean Exploration Trust. And, and like Cassie at Caladan, the Ocean Exploration Trust was a key NOAA partner that Alan's office funded, I think, to the tune of about six million dollars a year. And and where and so, what was your sort of role in this national effort? What regions have you and when the, in the exploration vessel Nautilus explored, and how would you characterize uh, what your specialties were? Yeah, so Ocean Exploration Trust has been working with uh, very closely with NOAA Ocean Exploration for for many years. Um, So they've really been uh, our foundational support since we had the ship in the Mediterranean and the Atlantic, Caribbean, and now the Pacific. Uh, Most recently, uh, they are the sponsor of the NOAA Ocean Exploration Cooperative Institute, which we're one of five partners in along with uh, University of Rhode Island, which has the lead, uh, University of New Hampshire, uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic, and University of Southern Mississippi. Um, and so 
through that collaboration, uh, we're, we're really charged with um, exploring and characterizing. And so that's both, both mapping and conducting remotely operated vehicle surveys uh, within the U.S. EEZ, so 200 miles out from uh, any, any of the U.S. landmass. Um, so, our, so our role has really been to, to fill in some of the mapping data where we haven't mapped, as you already mentioned, uh, of our own EEZ. Um, and then also to conduct a lot of the biological and geological and maritime historical uh, expeditions to to characterize that. And then in parallel with all the science uh, and exploration that we do, uh, we're, we're also at Ocean Exploration Trust. Um, our our mission is kind of twofold with the science. We also stand up a lot of education programs as well. So we, we really treat our ship EV Nautilus as a training platform. So we bring interns and educators on all of our expeditions. We stream everything that we do live. Um, and all of the data and all of the information that we're gathering is, is made public. Um, so it is, it is not for any single researcher. It is for the community at large. And so what, everything that we do with Ocean Exploration Trust is, is very much in line with the mission of NOAA Ocean Exploration. Absolutely. And in fact, I've been on board the Nautilus, as uh, we talked about uh, on the last episode with Dr. Ballard, and love what you do. I even conducted one of these outreach events where we live streamed um, from the ship to some classrooms uh, around the country. And I was taking questions uh, at sea off of Northern California in between dives on the shipwreck of the USS Independence. And just love what you do and everything about it. And I should note, this is just a, such a great episode. I didn't, I picked people for their positions, but you, you can notice there's a theme here. We have mostly women. And so women hydrographers are really showing us the way. And, and we have another expert in the field here with Joy Dekabramani of the Schmidt Ocean Institute as the executive director who oversees the operations of their ship, the RV Falcor. That's another NOAA partner doing ocean exploration and science. And so, Joydika, can you tell us about the Schmidt Ocean Institute and, and what, what your ship does and how it contributes to this? Yes, certainly, Tim. Um, so, the Schmidt Ocean Institute was uh, established in 2009 by philanthropists Eric and Wendy Schmidt uh, to advance the frontiers of ocean exploration and research through technological advancement and intelligent observation. And as Allison just said, uh, the open sharing of data and information. So, we operate the research vessel Falcor, uh, which was named after the Luck Dragon in Neverending Story, by the way. And we um, offer that facility fully equipped research vessel at no cost to scientists globally uh, or marine technology uh, developers uh, to test their technology at sea. And in exchange, we ask that they make that data publicly available as quickly as possible uh, with the spirit that the open sharing of data, uh, the faster that happens, the faster everyone can understand what's happening, and therefore the faster the rate of discovery and our ability to react to or manage uh, this ocean space. And so we've been uh, uh, similar to OET and actually also NOAA's um, OER uh, with the Oceanus Explorer. We also uh, engage with a broader public. We live stream our dives. We have a remotely operated vehicle, Sebastian. Um, and so I think we have a great partnership with NOAA and uh, OET uh, in 
also promoting and and um, pushing out the data and the information that we gather. You absolutely do. I recall watching many of your expeditions and making the incredible discoveries, which uh, we'll talk about. But in this just introductory round, I, I think it's a, a nice kind of a representation of, of this partnership activity that NOAA pursued. We realized we couldn't tackle the, the entire exclusive economic zone on our own. And so we, we decided to form a number of partnerships. And in fact, this was all sort of overseen or initiated at a, at a White House summit in 2019. And it was the White House Summit on Ocean Science and Technology Partnerships. And, and after that, we formed probably a dozen uh, with, with we, we already had one with Schmidt, for example. And this is all under Alan's lead, superb leadership. I, I, uh, I just sort of sat in the meetings and watched him do his thing. And so thank you very much, Alan. One of those partners, uh, so we've had, we have the Schmidt Institute, which is a nonprofit. Caladan is a, a private company. Um, the Ocean Exploration Trust is also a nonprofit. Uh, Leslie is one of the, an academic institution at the College, College of Charleston. And we also partnered with the private sector. And this is where Ocean Infinity and Admiral Sam Perez comes in. Now, Ad, uh, Admiral Perez, your, your company has quite a mapping capability in using autonomous vehicles. Uh, tell us about what Ocean Infinity does and what they have, what they do it with. Uh, thanks, Tim. I, I, I'm very proud of Ocean Infinity and um, the work that we're doing. We're a company devoted to utilizing innovative technology to transform operations at sea, enabling the people and the planet to thrive. Unlike other marine survey companies, we started off with a different approach to the dangerous business of marine survey search and salvage. And from the start, our goal was to disrupt this inherently dangerous business by using available technology. And if that technology was insufficient to satisfy our needs, developing specialized tools to increase uh, productivity and to keep our workers safe. Uh, our goal was to provide our customers with products that exceeded industry standards while at the same time providing a safer environment for our team and a better way to skin the cat, so to speak. So. We've got a fleet of unmanned vehicles that we've used. Um, and those, we, we've got two fleets actually, the Infinity Fleet and the Armada Fleet. And I'll talk first about the Infinity Fleet. Uh, the Infinity Fleet consists of 14 Hugen 6000s. And these are uh, unmanned underwater vehicles that are capable of going down to 6,000 meters. Uh, phenomenal capability here. We use those uh, during the search for the ARS San Juan, and, uh, and, and we found that one, uh, a very, very difficult find, very, very difficult search. And then we also used uh, a fleet of eight Hugen 6000s in the uh, MH370 uh, search. We didn't find that one, uh, but to our knowledge, and I've asked people in the Navy, I don't think anyone has ever put eight underwater vehicles in the, in the water uh, searching at the same time. So we believe that that's a phenomenal capability and we're gonna grow that capability um, to piggyback onto the smaller or shallower water. We've got Seaworker eight meter boats uh, that we use to go ahead and, and uh, take care of closer inshore work. But what we're really most excited about is the Armada fleet. The Armada fleet is a fleet of 17 vessels that we currently have on contract right now we're building them right now. 
four 21 meter boats, uh, eight 78 meter boats, and the mid-sized ones are five 36 meter boats. Those, uh, the 21 and the 36 meter boats are going to be unmanned and the 78 meter boats will be optionally manned. Uh, and those are, are going to be just the heart of what we're going to be doing in the unmanned uh, seabed intelligence arena. Gosh, Sam, that is just so incredible. Uh, for, first off, let me say, when you retire, uh, I want to put my name in for your job. But secondly, the, this is why Noah partnered with you, is that we couldn't, we didn't have the resources, the funding, uh, to, to, uh, and the acquisition programs in place to acquire this incredible capability. And so you, uh, that's exactly what Alan did when he partnered with you. And let me go back to Alan. So Alan, you know, I, before I was being your champion for ocean exploration, you had already signed the agreement with Ocean Infinity to be a partner. And so you had a, you know, you were very astute in realizing that. And I, I was kind of curious, how, how, when did you start that partnership? It's a great question, Tim, and and really appreciate everything that we had done with uh, Ocean Infinity and and the many other partners, uh, pretty much all of whom are on this panel uh, at the moment, and then there's others. But you know, we we saw the technology that Ocean Infinity had. We knew uh, on the government side that often industry and philanthropy can move faster than the government can and has resources that we should be taking advantage of. But we also know that ocean exploration is an inherently transdisciplinary and partnership-oriented exercise. And so we were actively seeking out partnerships where we were mostly looking for uh, a a mutual benefit to both partners. We we didn't want to just use somebody else's uh, capabilities we wanted to be able to learn from them, but we also wanted to help share some knowledge and transfer things that we might have had as well. So where they have great ex- expertise in the, in the ship side and the autonomous vehicle side, we had great expertise in the telepresence side. And so what we were seeking is to learn a little bit more about each other's operations, how we might be able to, to take advantage of their knowledge on the autonomy side as we sought to be- bring more autonomous systems into our future and how we might help them understand how telepresence might be able to be used in that autonomous paradigm as well to allow people on shore to participate in real time uh, with the missions and as well as uh, allowing the public to view what happens in real time, as Jodica pointed out and uh, and as Allison pointed out that OET and Schmidt both do as well. So uh, it was a no-brainer when you look at companies like Ocean Infinity to seek out a partnership and see if there were things that, that the government can learn from them and that maybe the government can help them learn and, and progress and grow as well. Yeah, well, well done by you and, and, and Sam's team too. I mean, when you hear a lot in the news about drone technology and, and fleets of drones, and we have them through partners like Ocean Infinity, and that's fantastic. And, and so there's, this is just a really exciting topic, but you know, we've talked really about the, the vehicles and exploring and mapping. But, um, and you touched on telepresence and this outreach to labs and science centers and schools. And this is really the thought child of Dr. Ballard. And so Allison at Ocean Exploration Trust, um, can you just elaborate more and tell, tell the audience what that technology is and how it works at sea and, and what's the impact it makes? Yeah, well, we really try to give everybody uh, an over-the-shoulder view of what we do at sea um, and also expand the footprint of who can be involved. 
So through telepresence, or which is essentially, you know, being able to connect through through video, and uh, it could be live streaming video, it could be live streaming data uh, back to shore, um, just to provide uh, situational awareness to either scientists or the general public or students and educators that are following along on shore. So we have a variety of ways that, that we use telepresence-enabled expeditions to, to connect with others. Um, for the science community that are following along our expeditions, they're able to direct dives, uh, for example, from their living rooms or from their home labs. We've had on Nautilus, we've had somebody directing a deep sea dive that was 3,000 meters deep while they were on, on a flight and connected to Wi-Fi on an airplane. Um, we, we also uh, do a lot of outreach to schools, um, so we're streaming everything that we do, whether it's subsea or some of the deck operations on the ship live, uh, but we also have broadcast studio uh, on our ship, and, and I know that you know, the, the Falcor and, and others do, do similar efforts. So we're trying to connect to students so they can also uh, connect directly with the role models um, that, that are on, on the ship. And, you know, we're not trying to necessarily turn everybody into an oceanographer, but we want to set the hook and students, especially um, for some of the STEM subjects that might uh, that they might have a, a draw to in some of the exciting things that we find in ocean exploration. Um, so we're, we're really able to connect with a broad, broad group of audience uh, from scientists to the public to to young students. Um, so we, we really try to uh, make sure that we've got uh, something for everybody from cradle to crane. I love that. So uh, interestingly, it was so wonderful about this telepresence. I've practiced it myself. In fact, to sell this program to the White House and, and at one point to Senator Moran when he was the chair of the, the Appropriations Subcommittee under, under the Department of uh, the Commerce Committee in the Congress, I was live streaming during my meeting with him an expedition and showing him the, the sea life that the ROV was filming and discovering. And it was, it was at like 5,000 meters, maybe, maybe a little shallower, but uh, he was just blown away by that. And Alan knows we were able to secure support, uh, funding support for his program. In addition to some other things I'll talk about, uh, but loved doing it. And what, what's so exciting about this is we're just discovering new things all the time. And I want to go back to Leslie at the College of Charleston and your BEAM team. What kind of new geology are we discovering? What seafloor features uh, over your career have we found that we never knew existed? Yeah, very interesting. Um, I think most people think we've already mapped the seabed. You look at Google Earth and that's like wearing uh, Coke bottles on your eyeglasses. You can barely see the topography of the seafloor. So pretty much every place we look, we are discovering the detail that we have not had access to. And some of the really interesting things lately have been these deep sea coral mounds. Most people think of coral and of being a shallow water group of organisms, but there are deep dwelling species that don't rely on sunlight. And they there are some that have stony uh, exoskeletons, and they can grow by building on top of pre-existing stony exoskeletons and build these large bioherms. And so off of the coast of South Carolina, for example, or the Southeast U.S., where it's fairly flat and deep for a long distance and the Gulf Stream comes along, there are hundreds to thousands of these deep-sea coral mounds 
And the Okeanos Explorer has done an incredible job rounding up the troops to get um, many different partners to fully map this previously unmapped region and then to go experience it live through ROVs, for, through remotely operated vehicles, to see and film the seabed in high definition. And the things we've discovered have just been so exciting. So many different organisms, high densities, high di biodiversity, and um, also continuous chains of these uh, coral mounds that have extended 80 miles or more. And these are water depths exceeding 500 meters. So this is very much a new frontier. And these habitats are really important and previously not known in great detail. Right, right, Leslie. I remember that discovery. I think it was 80 miles long and it was just this un undiscovered coral reef and, and, and very exciting. And for the listeners, uh, you could. There was one really, uh, really interesting example of a sort of discovery slash telepresence event uh, recently, where which demonstrated the power of telepresence. When one of our, the NOAA scientists, Christopher Ma, he was online, uh, and he usually does during these expeditions, characterizing and commenting on the, on new species. He's a starfish expert, and they came across basically a yellow sponge and an orange starfish, and it looked exactly like. SpongeBob and Patrick, the characters from the show, and he made this comment about a real-life SpongeBob and Patrick that went viral and made the New York Times and <laughs> several other periodicals. But it was just a great example of what's going on and these new discoveries. Uh, Leslie talked about geological features. I remember at least eight new seamounts, which are significant, as as my friend Admiral Perez would know, because we once had a the Navy had a submarine run aground on a seamount that had been uncharted. The USS San Francisco sustained heavy damage and had some sailors perish, sadly. And so that's just one example of why these things are important, either for national security or science or, or the economy in terms of fisheries. And um, in terms of these, so actually going back to geological discoveries, let me go to Cassie Bongiovanni of Caladan. I saw that you made some remarkable studies mapping the Challenger Deep to the most precise uh, measurement yet. Um, tell us about what you did in the Aleutians and why that was significant. Yeah, the Caladan, working with Caladan was pretty exciting because actually at the beginning, no one really knew why we needed to map. Um, and within the very first expedition and dive, we were able to prove visually why you know, the resolution we were able to achieve and how much better and more detailed maps are going to be with what we are able to do. So that kind of flipped everybody's, um, everybody at Caladan's thinking from being mapping as a tool to dive to being mapping as our primary, one of the primary missions, like let's map everywhere we can. Who else needs mapping data? Let's make it publicly available. And in our second year, we reached out to NOAA and NOAA gave us several US EEZ um, polygons of high priority deep water uh, mapping zones in and around um, the Mariana Trench as well as the Aleutians. And we ended up being able to complete almost everything in three months of continuous mapping. 
Um, we got the first pass, uh, several passes actually at the deepest points over the Aleutian Trench. So it was very exciting and just really fun to watch all that data come in. Well, you just did such an amazing job. This was this is really important for uh, for NOAA and the nation to map this part of our EEZ that had not been. And you created these incredible fly throughs of as if is it that th- these videos are if you're flying through the trench. And uh, and I don't know if uh, it, it'd be, if you have a website and can direct the listeners to those. Do you, are they available online anywhere? Uh, I believe they're available on Caladan's website and definitely on Caladan's YouTube channel. Okay, that's good. It was just remarkable. And also, interestingly, you know, this was at a time I believe the NOAA ships were not going to sea because of COVID. And you had wired, you had already worked the protocol. So we had this partner that stepped up and was able to perform a critical mapping mission that, uh, that uh, when we weren't able to. So great example of partnering and new discoveries. The geology there was just fantastic. And, and on this topic of new discoveries, Joydica of Schmidt Ocean Institute, uh, I have definitely seen some interesting things from, in terms of biology that the RV Falcor has come upon with the, with the ROV Sebastian. Yeah, what might you want to share about some of those discoveries and activities you've been involved with? Well, Tim, we've had a very remarkable year and a half, I should say, since uh, COVID started. We were fortunate enough to continue working uh, throughout the whole process. And uh, so last April in 2020, we we were working uh, in the Indian Ocean, actually, off uh, northwestern Australia and uh, found, serendipitously found, uh, what is now the longest sea creature, or at the moment is the longest sea creature, a siphonophore. It's uh, uh, 50 meters in length. And what was really remarkable about that discovery is it really shows how unexplored the ocean is. That the fact that in 2020 we are seeing a creature of that, you know, magnitude, that size. So that was one highlight. Um, and then later in the year we were. Um, uh, off the Great Barrier Reef, and um, we were actually doing some systematic mapping. And so I think, you know, Leslie had said uh, earlier that many people think that the seafloor has been fully mapped, um, and you see it on Google. It's really very coarsely mapped, so about maybe one kilometer resolution. And so we really do need to, to use some of the tools and technologies we have today to do some high resolution systematic mapping of the the seafloor. So we were doing the systematic mapping and we came across a new reef, an entire new reef structure on the Great Barrier Reef shelf. Uh, it's, it, you know, the top of it sits 40 meters below the sea surface. So uh, last time a reef was discovered in this area was 120 years ago when they were still using lead lines um, and they'd mapped this region uh, at that point. But so now it changes, you know, things like shipping and navigation routes because they know that there's a, you know, reef there. And uh, uh, so this is part of the importance of why we need to have systematic mapping for the reef discovery. But in that same expedition, we uh, caught the very first sighting ever or in the wild of a ram's horn squid, a spirula spirula. Uh, and you may, uh, you know, you may have seen the shells that actually reside inside the squid, which are those spiral shells that sometimes wash up on seashores. So until that discovery, um, 
that any any uh, ram's horn squid that had been caught in captivity swam upside down compared to when it, where it swims in the wild. And uh, and this speaks to the uh, strength of telepresence and being able to broadcast live because on board were no squid experts and we're not squid experts, but we knew that it was something unique when the uh, Twitter started to uh, light up and uh, squid experts saw that and realized that this was the first time they'd ever seen this creature swimming in this way and it has now turned, pardon the pun, uh, their theories quite literally upside down. <laughs> well, well said there, Joydika. This is so incredible. I, I just found it fascinating to see all these new discoveries and they're relevant. Uh, in fact, I recall um, there's other, there are ever related efforts in terms of what I, some people call bioprospecting and that is uh, looking at the different chemical and molecular compounds that various uh, sea creatures have uh, that can lead to new medicines and um, really exciting pharmaceutical possibilities. I know that several NOAA expeditions have led to uh, treatments for uh, pancreatic cancer from a green sponge in Alaska, for example. And sponges are fascinating because, you know, they've evolved, they don't move, and They've evolved then these incredible compounds to help them survive and defend themselves. And now we're applying those to medicine. So these this matters for a number of reasons. And it's, and it's just interesting and fascinating. I, I don't know why people go to space when there's nothing there. <laughs> All right, I won't, I'll, I'll stop the NASA bashing. But uh, ultimately, I want to go back to, to Alan. And uh, Alan, you know, we, we're talking about this exploration. And I would like to point something to the listeners this, it's not just like random, uh, randomly uh, wandering. It, it takes a little bit of discipline to s kind of compile where we have gaps and then systematically exercise a plan to fill them. Uh, and you led that and orchestrated the teams that uh, are represented here. Uh, tell us about your team in NOAA's Office of Exploration and Research, your former office, uh, that did this work and how they do it. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and, and I think the key the key word there is team. Um, not only does that office have a phenomenal team, uh, one that I miss uh, every day, uh, it, but I'm excited to be in my new role. But it's a team that focuses on partnering uh, and bringing everybody to the table in conversation to determine what the biggest priorities and the biggest challenges are. Uh, we routinely convene workshops with members of the community, um, including the Ocean Exploration Trust, who has co-hosted workshops with us to bring members of the community together to look at uh, areas that, that have high priority needs from an exploration perspective so that we can understand what would be needed uh, to do that type of work. And then, and then from there, determine who all needs to be involved. Uh, whether it's NOAA conducting the work using NOAA vessels or it's NOAA funding that type of work uh, using other people's vessels and assets or in partnership with others, as we've already talked about here today. So, so the key ingredient is really convening the community and bringing them together, which is something that uh, NOAA's Office of Ocean Exploration and Research has done extremely well for its long uh, history and is doing increasingly in partnership with other organizations, including my current organization, uh, the Consortium for Ocean, uh, Ocean Leadership. 
Um, we do that not just through workshops every couple of years that might be geographically or thematically focused, but also through regular convenings of the community through something called the National Ocean Exploration Forum, where we seek to identify what the biggest priorities and challenges are of today, as well as what those challenges and priorities might be uh, moving forward in the future, and then look to develop out the solutions and the programming uh, to, to solve those, those challenges uh, and address those priorities. This is done, like I said, in conjunction with the broad community, uh, not just from academia, but also industry and philanthropy, uh, and increasingly over the years in the international community as well. Um, so th this is this really led to an effort that came out of the Ocean Science and Technology Summit uh, that took place at the White House that you mentioned earlier, uh, that then was followed on where we developed across all of the government agencies a national strategy to fully map explore and characterize the USEEZ. Proud to say that, that that strategy was developed and released uh, under the previous administration. And the implementation of that, that strategy is happening right now through what is called the National Ocean Mapping Exploration and Characterization Council that is co-chaired by NOAA and the U.S. Geological Survey and has representation from about 15 or 16 uh, federal agencies who have equities in the ocean exploration mapping and characterization space, uh, both on the civilian side as well as the defense and the intelligence side as well. Uh, and, and they're looking to support the work of the community and in partnership with the community so we can get this great work done. Part of this, of course, requires the development of standards uh, to say that some area is mapped at sufficient resolution or explored for the first time or fully characterized for some in-state use. Uh, and it's a conversation about what technologies do we need to bring online? Uh, how can industry help uh, bring those technologies online? What priorities are needed, whether they're mission-based priorities of the agency, basic research priorities, uh, as well as priorities of the, of the not-for-profit and industry sector that are, that are participating in these efforts as well. So it really, it's one of these things where it takes a full village. And the catalyst for that conversation starts in uh, NOAA's Office of Ocean Exploration and Research, which I had had the pleasure to run uh, for a good seven and a half years. You did. And you did a great job there, Alan. In fact, one of my uh, highest priorities as the acting and deputy administrator at NOAA was that, na a national plan and strategy for ocean exploration and mapping. And if you recall, uh, what I did, I took your idea. Originally, we started with just a national ocean exploration strategy, and I pitched that to the Ocean Policy Committee in the White House, and they bought it. And you carried that football, added the mapping piece, uh, and here we are. We have a national strategy and plan being implemented in a different administration showing the value, the bipartisan value of this incredibly important work. And so you talked about identifying needs and requirements and let me go to Admiral Sam Perez at Ocean Infinity. This is what they do. They have customers who have needs to understand the ocean, have it mapped and explored. So, Sam, who who are these these folks that you're supporting that have that ask you to do this work? Well, Tim, it's a broad range of both private individuals and uh, corporations in the government. You know, I, I tell people that uh, we have really four lines of operation. Uh, our, our government, um, actually DO, two parts of our government, DOD and then uh, the non-DOD side, and then the commercial side, and then partnerships. And some of those partnerships run with uh, universities, 
some of those partnerships run with uh, different corporations. Uh, and then some of those partnerships are just citizens who are interested in looking for things. Right now, we've got a project uh, that we're going out and uh, looking for some World War II artifacts. So we're really pleased at the broad spectrum of people who are interested in mapping the seabed floor. Uh, you know, we, we think that it, it's so exciting. Uh, of course, you've got the wind industry, the renewable energies market that is absolutely exploding. Uh, they're right now off the uh, East Coast. I think the East Coast is probably taking the lead on the renewables energy market uh, in the maritime sector. Uh, and they're out there, you know, asking us to map the seafloor uh, to go in and put in um, wind turbines. Uh, and then, of course, we've got the regular petroleum industry who's, who's been a reliable customer for many, many years. Uh, and they continue to come to us and, and ask us to map uh, the seafloor and contribute to the seabed intelligence portfolio that's already out there. Uh, but we're really excited about the fact that, you know, we've got such a broad spectrum of customers across academia, private individuals, the renewable energies market, uh, and NOAA. Let's please don't forget the fabulous work that NOAA is doing, because I'll tell you, if you really want to, you know, highlight some people that do phenomenal work that are humongously under-recognized, uh, it is the folks at NOAA. And, and you're absolutely right. There's so much that we don't know about our own planet, and yet we're spending just enormous sums of money um, to go off and, and collect, you know, a couple of rocks and, and a, a little bit of dirt from other places that we're probably not going to get to for a long time. So I, I echo... I echo um, your your head scratching uh, piece on, on on the space exploration while we've still got so much to do here uh, in the world's blue part. Right, right on, Sam. Uh, exactly. I once uh, attended an event with former astronaut uh, Scott Carpenter, who who is a Mercury astronaut. He's also an aquanaut on the Sea Lab, and I, I asked him to compare the two experiences, and he said that. Space is just like, you know, a really quick flash in the pan. It's really bright and shiny, but anything in the ocean's cold, dark, and hard. <laughs> um, but your, your technology and the technology and partnerships that we've talked about is making it more, exciting, more accessible and more exciting and shiny, I think. And so I want to go back to Allison Fundus of the Ocean Exploration Trust in terms of other type of customers and users and people who you've, I've seen uh, you and Dr. Ballard really um, work with just a diverse array of people who want to see what's down there on the seafloor. Um, how about highlighting a few of those maybe we haven't mentioned? Yeah, happy to. Um, we yeah we work with a beyond NOAA. We work with uh, quite a few few partners. So within NOAA, like I've, we've already mentioned, we work with uh, very closely with. Um, NOAA Ocean Exploration. Uh, we also do a lot of work with the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries, uh, which we're gearing up to spend the, the rest of our season. Uh, we're, we're the sh we've got our ship in LA right now. We're heading out to the Papahano Mukuakea Marine National Monument uh, in just a few weeks after we wrap up one of our technology uh, demonstration demos with um, uh, with the Ocean Exploration Cooperative Institute. But we've also worked with partners like National Geographic Society. Um, in 2019 was our last expedition where we went and looked for Amelia Earhart's 
lost airplane. Uh, unfortunately, did not find it, but that's a big uh, piece of the puzzle in, in determining maybe where it is. Um, and then we also work with groups uh, over the years like uh, Ocean Networks Canada. Um, and so that's a, a cabled uh, seafloor observatory out of the University of Victoria, uh, very similar to the Ocean Observatories Initiative funded by the National Science, Science Foundation here in the U.S. Um, so we've been working with them on their annual maintenance um, of, of their seafloor observatory and sensors uh, for the past seven years now. Uh, so we, we do a variety of partners uh, where we are uh, able to charter for any individual scientist if, if they're interested, uh, but generally it's more of the National Geographic level or um, university level partnerships. Yes, exactly. And there's, a, in fact, the book I mentioned by Dr. Ballard uh, details others. Uh, for example, I believe the country of Turkey, uh, which I won't go into here, but you helped recover a, a, a lost um, aircraft, uh, you and your team and, and the pilot and, and the remains of that pilot. And it's actually a, quite a moving description. So they're just the, the diverse and um, me, uh, kind of uh, uses and, and just the versatility of the, the capability is just remarkable of what we can do now under the sea. Um, so thank you for that, Allison. Uh, I actually want to go to Joydika uh, Vermani at the Schmidt Ocean Institute on the same question. And specifically, I know you're working, I believe you're working with Scripps to characterize. Yes, Tim, we actually uh, had scientists from the Scripps. chemical, uh, toxic chemical uh, on DDT board, on the seafloor in uh, Just California. a couple of months ago. Is that correct? Are Southern you California. That? So there's a big DDT field uh, that was discovered uh, by scientists uh, from the Southern California region, including UC Santa Barbara and other places. And uh, Falcor was scheduled to do operations there anyway. And so we wove in this opportunity with our ROV to actually get eyes down, you know, down there and see what that field looks like. So uh, the scientists, they took samples as well as, uh, you know, visual uh, imagery of what's down there. Um, and all of that is now, you know, we we transmitted that live and uh, the videos are on our YouTube channel. So if anyone's interested in seeing what that looked like, uh, but it is really um, eye-opening to see uh, what, you know, the seafloor, what, what some parts of the seafloor uh, look like after human activity has impacted them. And it's a uh, it's very sad to, to see that, but it does actually um, have an economic consequence because um, you, it's, it's hard to utilize that part of the offshore world uh, until we know better what it is we're dealing with from these chemical barrels that were dumped over, I think it was something like a 30-year time period from the late 1940s, maybe a 40-year time period. Um, so it does have an economic consequence for us using the ocean as a dumping ground like that. Well, right. And it's a, it could be a major public health issue, and it could also be in the food supply for fisheries, for example, in the seafood sector. So the, this, you know, another sort of different, but compelling reason it's so important to have these capabilities and explore and characterize the ocean, uh, especially in view of the unfortunate, but, but, a fact that we have not taken care of our environment and really to rectify that and, and map that and assess that we need these capabilities. Um, so great to see your support for that and really critical effort. 
Um, I wanted to go back to Leslie Sauter at uh, the College of Charleston and your BEAM team, Leslie. I love that that whole thing. And as as we like start thinking about the future, and I like like how you just embraced this at the very beginning about developing new a new workforce for this. And uh, increasingly, I love that you address the fact that you're trying to recruit and you're successfully fielding uh, women into the workforce. I have three daughters, and I want to see them do this great work too. Um, and so what, what do you have, um, are, are you recruiting? How are you doing? How are you addressing that? Uh, how have you been so successful? Well, the maps and the ships do all the recruiting for me. All you have to do is show people, show students the incredible maps, the 3D fly-throughs, um, and, and then to tell the potential recruited students, these were generated by your peers, not by people at NOAA, these are data sets that we have access to. And then to throw on top of that, this incredible high definition video, it's easy to draw people into the field if they're exposed to it. And then on top of that, if you can say, well, if you learn a little bit, you get to go out to see and map it yourself. And, um, and then of course the final carrot is the jobs are plentiful. We cannot fill the number of job offers that are proposed to the students. They get their pick of jobs. So there's a huge market out there for people to enter this field of seafloor mapping, whether it be charting navigable waters, which we call hydrography, or exploring the deep sea that has not been mapped in high definition, as we've been talking about, because there is so much out there to, to discover, and it is just such an exciting process. So it's easy to recruit, really. I, I would say that's the case, too. That's, that's really why I'm in this field. Uh, I fell in love with that whole, that, this whole idea of exploring the ocean and mapping it uh, early on when I saw Dr. Ballard give a presentation at the Naval Academy in 1986. And uh, let me go back to Sam Perez at Ocean Infinity Admiral. And tell me about that. Are, there, um, are, are you hiring? And how's the industry look from your side? I absolutely agree. It, the industry is absolutely uh, hot right now. And yes, we are hiring. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're, you know, we came up and looked at the market demands and said, hey, you know what? We've got 14 of these AUVs and the demand is so great that it's really not satisfying the, the needs of the community by having all of those on a ship. So we're putting those in flyaway systems uh, that we can send off to various parts of the globe for customers who want that capability to go and do autonomous underwater uh, research at depths down to 6,000 meters. Uh, so we're going to have four of those here in Ocean Infinity America, and we're probably going to have, uh, we'll have four uh, at Ocean Infinity Group. Uh, and I suspect, based on the pull that we've already seen, uh, that we're going to take a good number of the 14, uh, the six that are remaining, and those will probably go into some form of flyaway systems as well. So you're absolutely right. It is an absolute hot market. Uh, when we go out and partner with academia, uh, the number of students that come over and the amount of time and the energy that they put into all the research work that we're doing, and whether it's just working on the equipment or actually going out and doing some honest to God mapping, um, boy, you can see the excitement. You can see the 
the, uh, the, the level of dedication that is involved with the folks that are in this, in this really exciting field. So I absolutely agree. Uh, recruiting is definitely not hard. Uh, and the level of excitement and the talent that you're getting is just absolutely astonishing. Oh, that's great to hear. I, I, I love it. And um, that makes me want to go back to Cassie Bongiovanni, formerly of Caledon Oceanic and now with Applied Research Lab, University of Texas. And I suppose that's what happened to you because here you had uh, Caledon was this company founded by Victor Briscova with the pure goal of exploring and, and in a human operated submersible, the, the, the five deepest points in the oceans. And it's just a remarkable journey, by the way, if anyone is interested, either Google five deeps, or you can look up for the book by Josh Young, which chronicles all this and Cassie's featured in quite prominently called Expedition Deep Ocean, the first descent to the bottom of all five of the world's oceans. So how did that happen, Cassie? How did you get recruited by Victor Vescovo, this person who has set the Explorers Club Grand Challenge where he's hiked the, I think, the five highest mountains and he's skied to both the North Pole and the South Pole. And when he decided to add this to his crazy list, he got you. How do he find you? Um, well, it's actually a, a really great question because I started my mapping career in undergrad at the University of Washington's spin-off beams team that was inspired by Leslie's group. Um, so I, uh, I've been hearing about the beams team in Charleston forever. Um, but anyway, I was one of the first students that went through that program at UW and then went and worked at NOAA at UNH, decided to get my master's at UNH in ocean mapping. And from my connections at the Okeanos Explorer who worked, uh, their mapping team who worked right down the hall, um, you know, they had somebody at NOAA was on the Caladan ship for their um, attempt at diving the Titanic. Um, and they sent an email out to the Okeanos group saying, oh my gosh, these guys are so great. They're the nicest. They, they're looking for a mapper, like they, they're so fun. Anybody would be what, like they want, it's just too cool. And there wasn't a lot of explanation of what the mission was. They just said they wanted a mapper for 120 days. And I was wrapping up my graduate program and was like, I guess I can, <laughs> you know, throw my name in the ring. I could use some more sea time. <laughs> Got a call immediately after I sent the, my CV over and, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> Golly, what an experience, Cassie. In fact, you know, a couple of things to say there. First of all, Cassie is on a Discovery Channel show about this. It's a really awesome series. I highly I recommend you look it up on the Five Deeps Expedition. And uh, I happen to know the person who recommended you, I believe. I think it was a, a, a NOAA Sanctuaries diver named Tani Casserly who was on the ship limiting factor when they were diving Titanic. I scuba, I was scuba diving with him on a U-boat actually this last year. That's another story. But ultimately, uh, nice to see the connections between you, Leslie, Noah, and uh, we could just go on and on, but but thanks for your contribution. Uh, as we kind of get to the end here, I want to go back to Alan, you know, being responsible for the national program, leading it in such an expert fashion. 
And, and there were two really kind of significant, uh, three maybe, developments. He mentioned this national strategy and plan for ocean mapping and exploration and characterization. We got that done. It's being implemented. There was also an important piece of legislation we were involved with, and it was called the C-Note Act, which uh, C-Note, C-E-N-O-T-E, stands for Commercial Exploitation of Ocean Technology. And Senator Wicker introduced the bill, and it was passed in 2018, and it was ultimately one of these really important uh, um, efforts that is uh, advancing ocean technology uh, through the, the University of Southern Mississippi's contributions to this Ocean Exploration Cooperative Institute. And now there is another act that he has introduced, Senator Wicker, who is we previously introduced in, in this show uh, on, on the, the Ocean Exploration Act. And since, Alan, your job right now is to basically lobby and advocate for uh, ocean matters and science and technology, uh, you're involved with this. Uh, do you want to say any comments and tell us about the prospects for this act? Sure, Tim. I'm, I'm happy to do that. And uh, I, I think we prefer the term educate. Um, but certainly one of the things that we are trying to do is, is to make sure that ocean science is properly supported across the government. Uh, that ocean exploration, of course, is a key part of that and, and, and that I have a passion and a history for. And that ultimately the data and the information that is collected when we're doing ocean science activities uh, is, is made for good use. Um, it's publicly available and people are using it to make good decisions. Um, the Ocean Exploration Act is, is a bipartisan, um, a bipartisan um, process within the, within the Congress. There is huge support again, uh, amongst both the, the Democratic base and the Republican base as well. Uh, and ultimately, I think what we're trying to accomplish uh, for the Ocean Exploration Act moving forward is, is to address a couple of the, the key things that we think are going to be important for continuing this, this enterprise moving forward. One is already being done to some degree, but I think can be enhanced, uh, is, is partnering and cost sharing across the federal government agencies. Uh, that can be more difficult than some might, might imagine, and there could be some changes and some additions to the act that could help foster and facilitate that uh, in partnership with another act, uh, the Na National Oceanographic Partnership Program Act, which is part of the National Defense Authorization Act uh, that was passed this past year. Um, another is that while I'm really happy to see the progress that's been made bringing the agencies together uh, in partnership to address our mapping, our exploration, and our characterization priorities and needs across government, um, there is clearly a need to engage and partner with the non-federal sector as well, many of whom are here and have partnered for a long, for a long time with the agencies. Um, but we, we need to be addressing this in a way that has some level of equivalency in the decision-making. Um, the government, of course, has to make inherently government decisions. Businesses are making decisions that affect their, their business interests and profits, and the not-for-profit organizations are needing to make decisions that affect them advancing on their mission and their priorities as well. And, and until we all get together uh, and we have those conversations, we, we, we put the pieces of the Venn diagram together and we figure out how we're going to drive forward in this enterprise together with, with an equivalency in decision-making across the sectors, I, I think we're going to still have some troubles and some stumbling blocks away uh, to really fully realize uh, the goal of, of fully exploring not just the United States uh, exclusive economic zone, but, but the whole ocean across the globe uh, in partnership 
across the sectors and across the nation. So I think those are some pieces that perhaps could be strengthened in, in the legislation. Um, I don't think that the legislation is broken by any means. There's, there's, we can still do great things moving forward with the legislation as is, but those are a couple of the things that I think I would personally advocate for and certainly something I would have driven after, um, on, from the agency side had I stayed in the government. But now that I'm on the outside, uh, these are the things that we're hearing from our membership, uh, which is, which spans academia, industry, and philanthropy. Uh, and we're looking for ways to make the partnering process easier because we all ultimately have a common goal. We want to map, we want to explore, we want to characterize, and we want to share that wonder and excitement with the world around us. I love it, Alan. Thanks. And so well said. And forgive me for characterizing the Consortium for Ocean Leadership as a lobbying group. Uh, Yes, education is your mission. Unfortunately, team, we're running short of time. Um, So uh, I've just enjoyed this immensely. And uh, I think I'll do one final round here. And like I did when I hosted my episode on seafood, I asked everybody for their closing thoughts and to tell me what their, their favorite seafood dish was. I'm going to go now and say, ask you to share any closing thoughts and tell me what your most exciting, the most ex- what excites you most about ocean discovery. So first, let me go to uh, to Leslie Sauter at the College of Charleston. Leslie, what excites you most, and what else do you want to share with us? Oh my gosh, one thing that excites me the most about ocean discovery—I I don't think I could find anything. I think just seeing the seafloor for the first time, wherever that ROV is, because you just don't know what you're going to find. And uh, every mission, every adventure is incredible. So that's the the short answer. (laughs) Not very specific, though. Oh, it's a hard question. I know. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, how about uh, Joytika Vermani at the Schmidt Ocean Institute? What excites you the most and what else might you want to share? What excites me the most, I think this is an amazing time to be alive because we have the technology now to truly map our seafloor and find out within our lifetimes for the first time what our planet truly looks like. Uh, and, you know, when, when I launched that Ocean uh, XPRIZE, Ocean Discovery XPRIZE in 2015, the estimate was it would take 200 to 600 years to achieve that. Uh, and our goal, uh, along with others, including Jebco Seba 2030, is to try and get that done by 2030. And it's truly an international effort. And NOAA is a part of that uh, as well. And that is just just a mind-boggling thought to see would be the first humans to know what our entire planet looks like. Indeed. It is so exciting. And I love the way you characterize that so perfectly. Uh, Joydika, thanks so much for taking time for this just really delightful conversation. Thank you. Let's go to Cassie Bongiovanni, formerly with Caledon Oceanic, now with ARLUT. Cassie, you, what excites you the most and anything else you want to say? Um, what excites me the most is when you're like at sea and data is coming in and you're realizing you are the only person in the world who has seen this part of the earth in this level of detail before. That is so neat. How, how perfectly apt that is for this discussion. Uh, Cassie, it's so nice to meet you for the first time and have you here after reading about you. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. 
And Allison Fundus of the Ocean Exploration Trust, I can tell you, you definitely topped your boss in this fantastic episode. Well done. Anything you want to share about what excites you the most? Well, I think that's uh, maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but um, I think what excites me the most is, uh, I think, one, just the increase of collaboration that we're seeing across the oceanographic community between federal uh, and private right now. Um, But I think what really, really excites me the most is bringing up the next generation um, and just how much there is left uh, to discover and to explore um, and all of the jobs that are being created and and the blue economy now. Um, And I think that's just really thrilling that we're able to set that hook in a lot of the youth now. Absolutely. I love it too. And I hope I can see that in action and on full display again whenever I can make my way to your ship, the exploration vessel Nautilus, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Thank you so much, Allison. Uh, Admiral Sam Perez of Ocean Infinity, tell us any of your closing thoughts and, uh, and, and some of the excitement you share with this team. Well, thank you, Tim. And, and thanks again for doing this and, and having us all on here. What, what an amazing group of you know professionals and uh, seabed intelligence uh, gurus, really wizards uh, you've, you've assembled together. But I'll tell you what really excites me uh, is I was involved with two Navy shipbuilding programs. And at that time, uh, everybody said that these were two of the most innovative. Some were using the words revolutionary shipbuilding programs that the Navy had ever embarked upon. Uh, I agree they were really interesting, but they don't hold a candle to what Ocean Infinity is doing today. Uh, Ocean Infinity is is just leading the way in this robotic and unmanned ship uh, field. And I'll tell you, we're going to introduce a range of technologies that's going to transform our industry. Um, we're going to do an inherently dangerous job uh, better. We're going to bring better technologies and better capabilities. And uh, at the same time, making it safer for the people who are out there doing this really dangerous job. So uh, I'm really excited about that and just happy to be a part of that with this, uh, with this phenomenal company. Absolutely, yes. And I'm so glad you joined us too, because th- you, you are doing great things there. And again, that's why we decided to partner with you. Uh, keep up the great work. And Alan Leonardi, closing it out, the former director of the National Program Office for this field of ocean exploration. Uh, any final thoughts and, uh, and, and words about what is the most exciting uh, on the horizon for you? Yeah, Tim, first, let me just thank you for hosting such a great, uh, a great panel and, and for all the other panelists. It's great to be a part of this with, with these amazing people. Uh, there are really kind of three things I think that excite me in addition to my echoing the sentiments of the rest of the panelists. One is the increasing democratization of data coming from the deep ocean environment and, and what people will end up doing with that in, in currently unknown ways uh, to advance our understanding of the ocean and, and ideally help us take the maximum best care of it. Two, the partnership piece is key. Seeing people engage across the sectors and for common good and common ground is truly exciting. I think that there could also be a revolution coming in how this type of work gets funded. Um, but these are things that are exciting to me. And then last, but certainly not least, is I'm really excited about the prospects of ocean exploration and deep ocean science 
ocean science in general, serving as a catalyst for improving the diversity spectrum of the people who practice ocean science and who communicate ocean science and who educate others about the importance of ocean science. I think we have a wonderful opportunity uh, and, quite frankly, a responsibility to make sure that our ocean exploration heroes of the future are representative of our populations today and tomorrow. Well said and an important point. Thank you for closing with that. Perfect. Alan, thanks again. And it's just uh, really a delight to work with you in this aspect uh, again. Well, okay, everybody, great, great job. Thank you. And this was a lot of fun. In this latest leg of our journey on the American Blue Economy podcast, we conducted a deep dive into this fascinating field of ocean discovery. This is probably one of my favorite ocean economy odysseys that we've yet taken. And I want to thank our sponsors at the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today. Uh, Please join us for our October episode where we are going to focus on climate change, understanding it better and understanding how to respond to it and and the various challenges and opportunities climate change presents the blue economy. We're going to have a rock star list there too, including Dr. Peter Domenical of the director of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, as well as Dr. Jim Riley, the former director of the U.S. Geological Survey and also former NASA astronaut. This is your host, Admiral Tim Gallaudet, CEO of Ocean STL Consulting. Thank you for joining us, shipmates. I look forward to getting underway with you next time. Oh,